This is a Young Farmer Business Program podcast. Uh, my name is Claire Osborne Booth, and we're talking today from Geary. Geary's about half an hour east of Dubbo, and we are an irrigation farm in the central west. Claire Booth straddles two worlds. I'm a half farmer, half lawyer. Her list of talents is long. She's also a Nuffield scholar, a businesswoman, and. Oh, I know, I know. A mother of two. Won't be long. Her little baby Lucy bounces on her lap, farting and burping in between feeds while we chat. But there was I... no sense of. Um... <laughs> Thank you, Lucy. <laughs> Her four-year-old son, Lockie, is being very patient with all this interviewing business and is watching the iPad in the room next door. Aside from her being a total superhero, the reason I've come to chat with Claire today is because she knows a lot about succession planning. There's her experience as a lawyer. Then there's her Nuffield research into how succession planning helps family businesses scale and her own experience as a first-generation farmer. And all this means that Claire can give us a 360-degree view of how succession planning can impact agricultural businesses. My name is Sam Loy, and this is Propagate, the podcast devoted to young farmers and fishers. This season, we've been hearing succession stories, and in this episode, we're going to zoom out a bit. Claire is going to share with us what inspired her to find out how and why families are getting succession planning wrong and what the benefits for your business can be if you get it right. Claire has seen the impact of succession planning play out in countless legal suits. I've worked for 15 years in rural Australia. Most of my work is in the succession space and what we're finding is that farms are getting smaller wills are being more contested, the ability for that farm to carry more and more families is diminishing because the prices of commodities are declining but the rates of land is increasing. So there were kind of these trends happening where I was saying, well, if my clients can't continue to either grow, scale, become more profitable, um, we are going to run into a car crash of litigation in the agricultural community. We are seeing within the legal profession at the moment an increase in the amount of people challenging wills. Claire has a pretty solid understanding of wills and how the legal aspects of a farming business can get messy. She breaks it down for me. The difference between an estate plan, a succession plan or a will is that a succession plan often describes the transfer of management and the transfer of assets and records everyone's expectations. So those expectations are likely to be rules around how I enter into the business and how I exit the business. There could be a whole range of reasons why people wanna leave a farming business, but often when we don't have rules in relation to how they're gonna do that, we can come into some serious punches up, you know, like partnership disputes are on the rise in in farming families. And it's normally because one partner wants to leave and the other one doesn't. Um, So succession deeds and succession plans, when done well, sort of think about all the things that could possibly go wrong and put together a bit of a list on how we deal with that. And that's incredibly powerful. That all sounds pretty essential, right? There's still more. 
An estate plan is normally going to focus simply on the assets, so superannuation, um, farming assets, uh, joint assets, uh, all of the different sorts of wealth that you've got, including debt and where it's going to go and how it's going to go. So it'll include a power of attorney, often an appointment of injuring guardian, a will, binding death benefit nomination, and it might have other documents that are specific to certain documents. So if land is owned between multiple people, we might need to have a deed of co-ownership, for example. So the estate plan basically makes sure that they all talk to each other. And then the will is a document that sits within the estate plan. So a will simply appoints your executor and directs the executor as to where the assets go. So you can see how if you just have a will and you don't have an estate plan or you haven't sat down to talk about what your succession plan is going to be, um, yeah, it's it, a will isn't designed to do anything other than appoint an executor and distribute assets and potentially create some testamentary trusts. If families want to transition things smoothly and manage expectations, they need to have far more documents than just a will, which actually costs a bit of money. But having all your legal affairs in order doesn't necessarily protect you from issues down the track. Claire has observed some trends. There was a really interesting cultural norm through the 80s and 90s and early 2000s where the older brother would get the family farm and the younger daughter or just the off-farm daughter would get the token house in Dubbo or get a small share of BHP shares. So it was just completely normal that there'd be this uneven distribution of assets. And the will would be often simple and if the brother decided after mum and dad had both died, he didn't want to be a farmer anymore, he'd sell the farm, cash out, maybe move to the coast or whatever. But the times, they are a-changing, and the expectations among siblings are changing too. What we're finding, in especially over the last 10 years, is those sisters are no longer happy for their brother to have a $5, 10 $20 million farming asset and then receive a $300,000 house in Dubbo. But if you're going to just be given something and then cash out on it, that's really not fair. So these sisters or off-farm children are not wanting to be unreasonable, but they're certainly not wanting their brother to get this uneven distribution of wealth. And those off-farm children are now lawyering up and they are getting really sophisticated advice on what their rights are. However, there is a significant amount of legal practices in the Greater Sydney environment that are paid on a no-win, no-fee basis that I feel are encouraging litigation at a time when it may not be so appropriate and they're doing it potentially for their own monetary gain. That's not all lawyers, that's not all clients, that's not all cases, but it's now 15 years and I'm starting to see some trends and some of them I don't really like because they're ripping apart farming communities. Claire has been very measured and generous here, but it's clear she's been in the coalface of some of these cases. And it's left a mark. Here I was litigating in Phillip Street, Sydney, doing a lot of challenging of wills. Some of these legal bills that I send clients, like in this recent drought, you'd send them an account for $30,000. And I would sit there and think, this is just so frustrating. Like if we'd sat down with a succession planner <laughs> and, and, and invested in those conversations, sure, your will might cost five grand, it might cost 10 grand, but I promise you that investment will mean 
that your children will still have Christmases together. I just realised that there must be a better way for farmers to do succession. So in 2017, Claire set out to learn about families who have got this stuff right. She was awarded the Nuffield Scholarship and travelled the world to speak to over 80 successful farming businesses about how succession planning helped them build wealth and scale. My measure was, have you converted your first million dollars into $100 million? Have you done that with your marriage intact? Have you done that in a way that's left your farmland and your natural resources in a better way than what it was when you started? And how's it all going now? She discovered some key things in her research. The first one... The really successful men and women identified as a business person and their business was producing things. But they weren't a primary producer per se. They, and they knew that they were running a business. When we identify as a primary producer, we're focused on our production. When we identify as a business person, we focus on our business literacy and by extension, our financial literacy. So take yourself seriously as a business person and develop the skills you need. So they force themselves to go and do various different training programs, communication training skills, and realise that for their business to be really successful, they needed to get out of their own way, they needed to find other people that could do a little bit of the production stuff, and they actually needed to be incredibly good at not only internal communication with their wife or their husband, with their staff and their family, but externally with banks, neighbours, any other third party that they're working with, because when they communicated really well, they could effectively negotiate, they could um, create solutions and 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 responses to things that they probably couldn't have done before they did the training. And I found that just really confronting because socially, when you go to a bonfire with your friends or neighbours, you're known as a farmer and a grazier. If you're too clever and if you're making too much money or if you really are running a humming business, there's something wrong with you and, and the agricultural community will, will view that with scepticism. And, and whether that's the Australian told poppy syndrome or what that is, who knows. But at the end of the day, that was the key determiner. Another key learning was that successful farming businesses prioritised communication. When they realised that communication was the determiner of whether their business was going to be incredibly successful it meant that they invested a lot of time, energy and money into becoming the very best communicators that they could be. And often they'd have to go away to a city environment, sometimes overseas. They'd invest a lot of money, especially a lot of time. They understood that their communication skills meant that they became better negotiators. And then as a result, your management style becomes flexible, adaptive and also basically means that it's tailored to every aspect of your business. Communication. It seems so simple, right? But the results from Claire's Nuffield research show just how important this skill is to the success of a family business. So they had better staff retention, the productivity of their staff improved, the quality of their lives became better. They had great marriages. You know, kids um, were happy to stay um, around. People were happy to work in environments for these businesses for probably less money because I really enjoyed being there. Claire met with family businesses who were doing this stuff really well. 
One of the case studies in terms of implementing this applied communication approach was a family in Brazil. This family established communication strategies at a very, very early age. So they would say to the family, I'm the grandmother, I'm the grandfather, you are the child, then there's the grandchild. You know, from age 10, all of those children or grandchildren understood that there was this large family business, there was a large family farm, so these people had actually, you know, got good legal advice, good accounting advice, they'd sat down and done some long-term planning. They said, well, if you're, you know, connected to the bloodline of this family, you will always have a piece of this family farm. Um, it might be via a share in a company or a unit in a unit trust. Um, you may work in it or you may not work in it, but you're part of this family. And, and it honoured the fact that everyone actually loves being connected to a family farm. It's just that not everyone can work in or on the family farm. This is super interesting when you think about all those farms with numerous kids, and sometimes the place just isn't big enough for everyone to work there. The key thing is, you may have a sense of entitlement to be a part of the family farm, but if you want a job, it's up to you to develop the skills and expertise that the farming business needs. This particular family basically said, we will do the following. We will educate you at the very best school that we can afford to send you to. Um, you will go to have a tertiary qualification, whether it's TAFE, an equivalent or university. You will go and work for someone else for a period of no less than five years after finishing your qualification. And then if our business has an opening at the time and you've got the right skill set, then you will be employed. So these families would have really frank conversations around the fact that not everyone was going to return to the family farm. This hands-on approach might sound harsh, but it's balanced with a healthy separation between quality family time and inclusive business talks. They would have twice a year a weekend where every single member of the family would come along and they'd book like a, you know, a, as you can imagine, it would be a large amount of people, um, either a weekend away somewhere, so a holiday destination. So the business would pay flights, accommodation, travel, food, you name it, for say a Friday and Saturday night. One of those weekends was a business weekend and the other one was no business at all. So the business weekend was actually the annual general meeting where everyone was welcome to sit around the one table. It might have been a pretty big room, like a boardroom or maybe a convention centre or however big your family is. And it was like duck shooting season. It was open. If you had a question about the business or you had a niggle or you had an issue, you could speak your mind and, and there'd be no repercussions because we didn't want to hear about it any other time of the year. So it was tabled, it would be investigated, and it would mean that if anyone sort of had a, a gripe or an issue and you weren't working in the business and you wanted to have your say, you still had the opportunity to have your say. Everyone was included. They were able to do that because there were really clear ground rules. They realised first and foremost that they were a family and it meant that they distributed the wealth throughout many families and instead of it being a process of excluding people, it was quite an inclusive process. Claire was so inspired by the family businesses she met overseas that she decided to share some of these insights with farming families here in Australia. In 2018, the drought was causing a spike in mental illness and family disputes. In response, 
Claire ran a series of workshops on succession planning with James Hamilton and Alan Parker for the National Association of Loss and Grief. We deliberately created this imaginary family that was just like you so that people could ask questions about what the Jones family would do. We wanted them to ask questions about, hey, I can see that Mr Jones is having some troubles. I'm wondering what he should do here. So what it meant from a professional perspective was that we could answer questions via a case study. And so no one's professional indemnity insurance was going to be impacted. But it also meant that people in a small farming community could ask some really hypothetical questions in a really safe manner and then go home and say well I'm kind of like Mr Jones so I probably should go and see my lawyer or accountant or whatever. The questions they got were revealing. The questions that were targeted to James the succession planner were questions like I cannot get my husband to sit down and talk about the fact that he will die one day My son is too scared to talk to him about succession and he just doesn't want to talk about it. How can I make him talk about it? And James has got some incredible skills and would say, well, if your husband can meet me and and see that I'm actually a really lovely person and we can have a bit of a chat around what sort of is scaring him, maybe we can talk about that. Claire was a little more blunt. The lawyer answer to that was more like a sledgehammer, which was, look, just tell your husband... He's got two choices. He can die with a great will or he can die with an ordinary will. And the lawyer will probably make twenty dollars to $50,000 more if he has an ordinary will that's not really thought out. So the legal profession wins and there's some barristers in Sydney which will probably upgrade to a new Mercedes. So the choice is his. And so, you know, depending on which approach that wife wanted to take, uh, she had some choices. Um, I say that tongue-in-cheek, but it is unfortunately, sadly, really true. A lot of these issues point back to the importance of recognising the farm as a business and addressing business priorities, such as planning for the future and your succession plan. As a country lawyer working with farming families, Claire has tried to ease her clients into these conversations. It often boils down to retirement goals and the legacy farmers want to leave. I sit down with them and I say, okay, I just need you to sit back in your chair, close your eyes, just trust me on this. (laughs) It's a bit of hippie shit, but just trust me. And we're going to sit on your headstone. And I want you to sit on your headstone so you've passed away and you're looking back over your life. And I actually want you to say, what do you want your legacy to be? How did you want things to go? And is there something that you would have done differently? Be brave enough to tell me what it is that you want to achieve in your farming career And let's see if we can do it. And some of those answers to the tough questions are, I don't want to be a farmer anymore. It's not working for me. It may not be working for my mental health. I don't want to get into a lot of debt. I actually don't like being in a risky business environment. The climate is changing. I don't think I want to go again. How do we exit gracefully and keep the culture and the history of being in Australian agriculture but not actually owning a farm. And I think those conversations are as important as the ones where we try and figure out how we're going to go forward for the next 100 years. Um, They're equally as confronting, you know, and both really valid because I think it's important that everyone knows that they've got choices. Sometimes it goes the other way and farmers are ready to give the business another crack. Men in particular will call me a couple of weeks later and say, I thought you were kind of nuts, Claire. (laughs) 
when we were doing that conversation because I just thought you'd want to know who my executive is going to be and who my beneficiaries are going to be. Um, but it really set me on my bum a bit because it meant that I actually had to think about how much time I've got left. In fact, I've got a lot more time than what I thought. And, and if you'd told me 15 years ago as a country lawyer in Dubbo that I'd be having these sorts of conversations, nah. But is it making a difference? Yes, because we're getting more buy-in and we're seeing people being brave enough to ask really tough questions. Claire is full of knowledge, but the things I got from this conversation was once again, communication. It's super important and to level up, you need to treat the farm like a business with the potential to grow. In the next episode, we're going to hear how Claire has taken all these learnings from practicing law and her Nuffield research and has applied them to building her own farming business with a strong succession plan. So, yeah, we're, we're having a tremendous season in Geary. Uh, the oats and wheat are growing really well. We've got some seed canola here. Uh, we've got some pretty majestic river red gums. Um, we've got an olive grove where I'm doing some... Propagate is brought to you by the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries Young Farmer Business Program. You can find all the episodes on the Young Farmer Business Program website and you can find us on your favourite podcast player. Don't forget to hit subscribe and cheers for listening. <laughs>